KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Stan Pavlik is a good friend of mine. We have worked together for years broadcasting University of Pennsylvania basketball games. Now, he was one of the greatest players in Penn and Big Five history, a real legend. After college, he played several years in the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Now, it was a league I hadn't heard much of before, Stan, but his stories over the years made me very interested in it. Then he told me about a new book about the Eastern League that was out, and it's called Boxed Out of the NBA. I caught up with the authors, Sil Sobel and Jay Rosenstein, and we just have a great conversation about the book, about the Eastern League. It's really interesting, and if you're a basketball fan, some great name drops. This is a lot of fun. Give a listen. Uh, Gentlemen, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate your inviting us. Yes, definitely. Uh, Sil, what's the genesis of the book? Where did the idea come from? How long have you guys been working on this basically our whole life jay and i grew up together in scranton pennsylvania we started going to eastern league games and we were little guys maybe 78 years old with our dads jay and i've been best friends since kindergarten we went to the games through childhood and high school listened to all the road games on the radio we're always huge fans and whenever we get together we'd start telling eastern league stories this continued We went to college together at Georgetown, both ended up in the Washington, D.C. area, still best friends, still get together, still talk about the Eastern League. And we said, you know, someday we got to write a book. And about three years ago, Jay and I, as we were both nearing retirement, said, all right, we're going to start. And started calling, you know, getting in touch with former Eastern League players. Jay's dad used to work for the former owner of the Scranton Myers, Art Pactor, who sadly passed away last weekend. One thing just kept building on another, and, you know, it's been a labor of love and something we said we were going to do since we were kids, and we've done it. I'd like to just mention that, you know, as Sil said, we kept saying, yeah, let's let's do this book. A regret that we both have is that we didn't start sooner. We do want to interview as many players as possible, that kind of thing. We, we lost too many, especially recently now with John Chaney, Howie Landa. Jay Pappy Norman, Richie Cornwall, and, and this Art Pactor we're talking about. We wish we had started sooner. Jay, give us some context. Describe the, the Eastern League, the, the quality of basketball. Is it, it, it akin to something that younger people might be familiar with? Well, I think uh, maybe people who follow the G Leagues or minor leagues in, in various sports would be able to appreciate this. But basically, this was the second best league in the world from the 1950s to the mid-60s. In our towns, we just loved these these teams, these players. For small towns to have pro basketball right in in your small gym, that was a great, great thing. And I, I, uh, I don't know about, you know, more about today's fans, but the fans from the Eastern League days of that era... Boy, did they, they were really committed to their teams, dedicated, vocal. You got, you know, small towns like a Sunbury, Pennsylvania, which has like 10,000 people. They would feel, you know, a competitive team year after year. So uh, there's a lot of pride and appreciation that this league for, for my generation, our generation. Uh, that's, that's how we felt about, about this uh, league. And, and I hope that there are leagues like that out there uh, now for, for younger people. Yeah. Just to add a little to that, Matt, I mean, the best way to look at it, Hubie Brown, who who played in the Eastern League for a few seasons, he put it the best way. He said, 
you know, back in the 50s and early 60s, there were eight to 10 NBA teams, and he had 10 players on a roster. So there were 80 to 100 players in the NBA back then. Today, there's, you know, 30 teams, 15 players. That's 450 players. So you had 100 then, 450 now. The guys in the Eastern League, they were the second best 100. You know, they were top-tier athletes, many of whom would be NBA stars today. The other thing that was going on is that there was an unwritten quota through the 50s and early 60s on black players in the NBA. You know, it started with one player. The, the, the color line broke in 1950. There were four black players in the NBA. Um, you know, and then went up to maybe one per team, then two per team, maybe three per team by the early 60s or four. You know, the Eastern League had black players from its first season. Not a lot, but it did. Then later through the 50s, it had more of the first all-black starting lineup in an integrated professional basketball league was the Hazleton Hawks of the Eastern League in the 1955-56 season. That didn't happen in the NBA until 1964. So you had a lot of very, very talented African-American players. And the only opportunity for them to play professionally, many of whom went to HBCUs, was in the Eastern League. So you had some great stars. We had players like Hal Lear, you know, King Lear from Temple, and Pappy Norman from Temple, John Chaney, you know, great Philadelphian. Wally Choice, Dick Gaines, Tommy Heenan, Julius McCoy. Goes on and on. These these are great basketball players who would have been great NBA players, but there wasn't room for them in the NBA. To compare it to something today, you really can't. This would be, you know, take the second best hundred players in the NBA, put them in their own league. That's what the Eastern League was. And as Jay said, they're playing in Sunbury and Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and Trenton. So for fifty cents or a bucket game as kids. We're seeing some of the best players in the world in high school gyms, and we're talking to them after the game. There was nothing like it. It, it was a unique experience, represented a unique time. Dan Pavlik, of course, is one of the great stars, and he can tell you better than I can how competitive it was. Um, oh, he's told me on many a car ride, believe me. <laughs> my my partner doing the Penn basketball games for for those that don't know. <laughs> and, and Stan was one of the you know Stan is one of the all time great players in the Eastern League. Absolutely. I mean, he's there's a, there was a, a, a it morphed into the CBA, so the Continental Basketball Association, in, in observance of the 50th anniversary of the league, picked an all-time team, and Stan was on that all-time team. He's the all-time top three-point shooting shooter in the Eastern League history. Now, he played for Wilkes-Barre, which was Scranton's arch enemy, so we hated him then, but now we love him, you know. But but he was a great player. So I'm curious, how difficult was finding the stats, the archives, stuff like that. It, it seems to me for something like this, some of the stuff might have been touch and go in a lot of places. Was it difficult tracking down what you needed to track down? That's a great question. Surprisingly easy, but that's because of the great legwork that a lot of people did ahead of us. There are people out there, there's an organization called Oh, and I, I want to make sure I get the, the name right. The American Professional Basketball Research Association. And it started, and the godfather of it is a man named Robert Bradley, who has just, it, it's basically the saber of professional basketball. And they have done all kinds of statistical research. And he and other people were able to build on the old CBA records. But they only went back to a point, I think in the early 60s and late 50s. Before that, there's this guy up in Albany who, God bless him, Chuck Miller. He's a freelance writer and stat freak. 
And he literally went around to every Eastern League city, he did this for like two or three years, went to newspaper files, looked at the box scores of every Eastern League game and compiled the missing years of statistics from 1946 to like 1959 or something. And Chuck prepared this comprehensive statistical guide that we use kind of as our Bible. So he had, you know, I mean, they don't have all the statistics. They don't have rebounds and assists for like the, the, the pre-1960 years, but scoring and things like that. So, I mean, is it is it exact? Can we certify that it's all entirely accurate? Well, obviously not. And here's where I chuckle, and, and, and Jay will appreciate this. The Eastern League was informal and seat of the pants at times. And it was known, for example, that if the official scorer liked a certain player, they'd give him a few extra rebounds or a few extra points. Or, you know, some guys would get nine assists a game and barely pass the ball. So, so it was the Eastern League. So we are basing it on what Chuck found based on what he found in box scores. Stan Pavlik actually told a great story. His wife, his first wife, used to travel to games with him, and she used to keep statistics. And there's a guy named John Postley, who was a Philadelphia legend, real muscle man, great, strong, fearsome player, who played in the Baker League and sadly passed away in a Baker League game in the, in the, in the 70s. He used to be very proud of his rebound totals. And Stan's wife knew that she didn't want to make John Postley mad. So she'd always add five or six more rebounds to his totals. And then when he'd compare her stats to the official score stats, she always had more. So he'd say, you got to give me more rebounds. Look, this is how many I got. Supposedly, he was one of the top rebounders in the Eastern League year after year. I'm not going to verify it's accurate, but he was, you know. So that's that's Eastern League. That's classic Eastern League. Jay, talk to me a little bit about, I mean, we're so used to professional athletes in today's day making tons of money and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, these guys were making tons of money. And I think, if I understand correctly, almost across the board, they all worked a nine to five job and then they would drive up on the weekend to 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 play a doubleheader or something like that. Talk a little bit about what life was like for these guys during the season. If you were going to be playing in the Eastern League, you had to have a uh, driver's license, access to a car and whatever else. Every player in the Eastern League pretty much had to drive themselves or in a carpool or whatever to, to get to these Saturday and Sunday night games. And didn't matter, you know, snow, ice on the mountain roads, they would go. And many got into accidents. Joe Lally who played at the Scranton Miners. He is from Scranton, actually. Uh, he told us that he almost got killed two separate incidents. Uh, he was so fortunate. And the thing is, they're, they're leaving to go home to get back to work on Monday morning. They're leaving like at 11 o'clock at night, driving four or five hours in the middle of the night. I do know that there were anybody who had carpools. There was a uh, an agreement that they had to have somebody as the designated person to keep the, uh, the driver awake. That was part of the... Uh, the weekend activities for these people. And, and, and these were, these are successful players and people, they're, 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 they're day jobs. Uh, many of them were teachers, salesmen, and so on. And they were able to actually make more money sometimes than NBA players between the um, game check or cash, actually, I guess. And that in those days was like 35 or $50 with that. Plus the, uh, the paycheck from work on the, on the, on the, uh, the main day. The players got to be very, very friendly with other players. 
They got to be uh, mentored by coaches, by driving in, in these games back and forth. And uh, it was just a part of part of being in the league. Still, take me back to day one. What's the origin of the league? Oh, it's, it's kind of kind of a, this, this Wild West atmosphere post-World War II. Players, you know, former college basketball players are coming back from the war. The economy is loosening up. People got a little money. People want to go out for entertainment and have fun. So there were two existing professional basketball leagues, then, the uh, National Basketball League, NBL, and the American Basketball League, ABL. And then you had a bunch of semi-pro leagues all around the country, particularly in uh, the Northeastern United States where Philadelphia and New York City were the hubs of basketball. In this environment, people are now starting to create new professional basketball leagues. Several entrepreneurs in Pennsylvania who were had teams in one of the semi-pro leagues or in several of the semi-pro leagues kind of wanted something a little bigger time, a little classier. Word has that I can't quite pin down that some of them had hoped to get into another new league that was starting at the same time called the BAA, Basketball Association of America, which became the NBA, couldn't get in. So they figured the heck with it. Let's start our own league that's not quite the top tier national league, but above the semi-pro leagues. So 1946, they got together in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, six of them, and formed the uh, Eastern Professional Basketball League, emphasizing the professional part of it and saying they were going to have you know a clean game and one that classier and more like college basketball, which really was king at the time, started it up and got a lot of good players from all around the Philadelphia, the, the, the Pennsylvania area. These are all teams pretty much in eastern Pennsylvania, Allentown, Reading, Lancaster, and Binghamton originally, and then uh, they formed a team in Pottsville and Wilkes-Barre. League got off the ground six weeks before the BAA, the Basketball Association of America, which later merged with the NBL three years later and formed the NBA. But the hope of the Eastern League was that it would become the minor league. They wanted the same kind of minor league system with the top pro league that minor league baseball had with major league baseball. Never happened for a variety of, well, didn't really happen until the Continental Basketball Association 30 some years later. But that's a complicated story that eventually came around. But that was the goal all along. They weren't competing with the BAA, NBL, ABL, but they wanted to be the next league, the weekend league below it. And we're hoping that they could get some good players that came down from the top leagues, which did happen, but they never got the financial contribution they wanted from the top tier professional leagues. Jay, how did the those top tier professional leagues and eventually the NBA, how did they look at the Eastern League? Did they look at it as a viable feeder? Was it stiff-armed? How did the league look through the lens of the NBA? Well, I think maybe it depended on team by team, right? Because some teams had uh, arrangements with, you know, NBA to uh, call up or call down a player. You know, I think that was interesting. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Still, what do you think? The NBA, I mean, I think they looked at, at the Eastern League as just a source for players, but they had no qualms about just nabbing a player from the Eastern League, signing them to a contract, and not compensating the uh, Eastern League team. That 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 went on for years and years and years. Eastern League, I guess, had to kind of up their game, which didn't happen until the 70s and the CBA years, where they had a kind of player agreement that was more ironclad and finally successfully sued the NBA and won when the NBA tried to, tried to nab a player. 
the other thing, you know, is during the gambling scandal of the 1950s, that kind of created a little distance between the NBA and the Eastern League because the NBA had banned a number of players uh, for life and the Eastern League signed them. And then the NBA kind of distanced itself from the Eastern League. It took a while for them to get back together. But as Jay said, there were a number of teams in the Eastern League that did have informal arrangements. Probably the best known was Allentown through a former coach named Fuzzy Levain, who was friends with Red Holtzman. The Knicks and the Allentown Jets had a, had a, had a really close relationship where guys like Mike Reardon were sent down, you know, and then went up to the Knicks. Harthorne Wingo started with the and Allentown Jets and went up to the Knicks. Uh, Milt Williams went from the Allentown Jets. Tom Riker was sent down. Eddie Mass. These are all New York Knicks property who got some seasoning in Allentown and then went back up to the to the Knicks. And when Hartford had a team in the NBA, Red Auerbach and the Celtics uh, had an arrangement with them. Otherwise, you know, Eastern League teams developed relationships with owners, with basketball guys. And some of the coaches in the uh, Eastern League were NBA, you know, talent people, scouts, Buzzy Levain, Chick Craig was an NBA scout. Stan Novak, great Philadelphia high school coach and part-time scout, also coached in the Eastern League. So NBA guys knew them. So they talked to him about players. Paul Seymour coached in the Eastern League for a while. In fact, funny story about Paul Seymour is that he was a Syracuse guy and used to play for the Philadelphia Warriors. I'm going way back, Matt. I'm going before your time. He he was in Syracuse and he got hired to coach the, the Scranton Miners. I mean, Paul Seymour was a legitimate NBA big-time coach and he coached the Scranton Miners, which actually made national basketball news. I guess Paul didn't want to drive alone. So there was this guy who had just graduated from Syracuse University named Jim Beheim, who was looking to play in the Eastern League. So Seymour invited him down. Beheim will tell you that his first year in the Eastern League, he was basically Seymour's driver. But then what happened, the, 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 the ABA came along and took all the top players, or a lot of the top players, not all, but a lot of the top players from the Eastern League. And suddenly Jim Beheim is like one of the top players left in the Eastern League. So, uh, but his first year, he'll tell you, he, he was Seymour's driver. And he also got this great one-on-one tutoring session. Imagine driving, you know, two, two and a half hours every weekend, one-on-one with Paul Seymour. And you're a guy who just graduated college and wants to become a coach. Bayheim will tell you, he learned a lot from Paul Seymour on those drives. And he also learned a lot playing under Stan Novak, great Philadelphia high school coach for a number of years. There, there is a great Philadelphia connection we can explore between the Eastern League and, 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 and the city of Philadelphia. I mean, it's, it's a Philadelphia, New York City league. Curious, and I'll ask this to both of you. Sil, I'll start with you. You guys had a working knowledge of the league. You had watched it. You were fans of it. So you knew, you know, you weren't coming to the information cold. But did anything surprise you when you started to dig into this and talk to people and, and learn how the sausage was made in the league? Did, you, did anything really surprise you? And I'll ask you the same thing following up, Jay. Yeah, just how great these guys were. You know, we're kids. You know, we were kids. And we're thinking back to, you know, being 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever. And, you know, these were guys who came into town. Some of them stayed and lived and worked there, but most of them didn't. And we admire these were our idols. I mean, you know, we didn't see that many NBA games on TV and certainly not person. But, you know, Swish McKinney, Bill Spivey, Tommy Eamons, we saw these guys. Then we get to talk to them, you know, 50 years later and find out what great people they were. So many of them became teachers, coaches, great coaches. Tommy Eamons became the you know, director of uh, the New York City Athletic League. 
uh, Bill, Big Bill Green, who was one of the bad boys, bad guys, you know, enforcers in the Eastern League. He was a legendary high school principal in, some of the, in one of the toughest high schools in the Bronx. So many, Howie Landon, John Chaney, Jim Bayheim, all these guys, so many of these guys became coaches and really, really good people. And many of them maintained relationships over the years. And to get to talk with these guys and find out this many years later, that these guys that we idolized as kids were really people worthy of the, of the admiration that we had for them was just, it, it was great. I mean, it was, it was a great feeling. This became more than just a, a lighthearted story about an old minor league. It became a story about a lot of guys who were really good and could have been lost to basketball history. And we got a chance to finally tell their story. And they really deserve to have that story told. Jay, same question to you. Anything surprised you as you dug into all the stories and, and learned stuff? Yeah, I never knew there was a quota on black players in, in the Eastern League. Uh, not, the, in, not in the Eastern League, in the, in the NBA. Two or three blacks could play on a, on a team in the years from like, uh, you know, the late 40s to uh, the mid-60s. And uh, that just blew me away. I also, in, in when we were doing interviews and so on, we would hear many, many times. Well, first, the, the Eastern, Eastern League teams and the fans were really, really good to all to the, to the all the players, especially the, the hometown ones. But there were occasionally, you know, racial incidents that you know happened, and you know, some kind of discriminatory uh, uh, situations. John Cheney, for example, told us that uh, he and another player on Sunbury, they were staying at a hotel. The other player who was black, he was seeing a white woman. And after a game, when they came back to the uh, hotel, they found a, a note on the door saying, do not go out tonight. John Cheney said, you know, that note to him meant don't mix with any white girls. And Wade Bellamy, he uh, sent by Art Pactor, who was you know, the, the Scranton owner who just died a few days ago, he sent. He was supposed to be playing for Scranton. Wade Bellamy is a great player who ended up at in um, Wilmington. When he when uh, Art Art Pactor said, "Hey, I, I got a uh, you know a tip about a nice apartment. You and your wife, go check it out." And when Wade Bellamy went, the landlord said, "We don't rent to coloreds." And uh, Wade Bellamy was so uh, disturbed by that that he. He wanted out of Scranton. He went to to uh, Wilmington and had a great career with the uh, with the Eastern League. But I, I was just touched by Ray Scott, others, uh, you know, Tommy Hemans facing that uh, that kind of situation. This is for off the court, and um, I don't know that that stayed with me a while. Still, are there any? We you've talked a lot of anecdotes. You've pulled a, given people a, a taste of what the book's about. Are there any? Uh, other great stories that are just kind of right at the top of your mind from this book that, that you could share to kind of whet people's appetite about what they'll get when they open it up? Yeah, you know, there's so many, but it, it just seems particularly appropriate to tell at least one Art Pactor story. Everyone around the league, and, and Stan will tell you, Art Pactor was the Red Auerbeck of the Eastern League. You know, one of the former uh, Eastern League commissioners, Jim Drucker, Who's also a Philadelphia guy used to call him the the, the, the Red Hour back of the Eastern League, and Bart was known back in the day whenever the Miners had secured a win for lighting up the big cigar and the whole bit. He was a larger than life figure, but one of my favorites is back then. You know, the home team was responsible for paying the the referee. I don't know what it was, fifty bucks a game or or whatever. And one referee, Dick Bavetta, 
who went on to become a, a Hall of Fame NBA ref, who was a friend of Arthur's, and I guess had a game that Arthur didn't like. And Arthur thought that a lot of bad calls went against him. After the game was over, Arthur wrote the check to, you know, Dick Pavetta and to the other ref, put him in the envelope, went to the referee's locker room, handed the $50 check to the other ref, and then took out Pavetta's check, took out his cigar lighter, and lit it on fire. <laughs> I don't think this happens in the NBA. But that was the Eastern League. <laughs> and that was Arthur. May he rest in peace. How about you, Jay? Is there a, a story that we haven't touched on that you think people would enjoy to really get a flavor of what the book's all about? Go to Dick Bavetta again for, for, for a story. Um, one time he was uh, refing a game, I think it was in Sunbury. Of course, his late call in the game went against the home team. Home team lost. And as soon as that game ended, the fans went crazy. They uh, started you know, chasing after Bavetta. He made it to the locker room. Fans were still trying to get into the locker room, knocking, you know, knocking, trying to knock down the door and so on. Bavetta happens to look around and he sees in a basement window some milk boxes. And he, he, he puts them together, climbs out the back window. He gets in his car, starts driving out. The police you know, were just kind of directing traffic out. They happened to uh, stop, stop Dick because his lights weren't on. <laughs> He was like, you know, shaking and his, you know, like crazy. Dick thanked them and then pulled away. But at that point, the police officer noticed New York license plate. And he realized, hey, that's the ref who we need to get get to. And the police officer started yelling, hey, uh, you know, here's the ref. Go get him. And Dick said uh, he barely made it out of there. And that was like one of his favorite and worst stories. So, Sil, you mentioned that. You know, the Eastern League kind of morphs into the CBA. What's kind of the the end of the Eastern League as you know it? Is this was this an organized thing that that moves it into the CBA? Just kind of what what closes the curtain on the the Eastern Professional Basketball League? It's a transition, really, and the transition started in sixty seven, sixty eight with the ABA. The ABA took a lot of the top tier talent from the Eastern League. The ABA had. Uh, anywhere between 10 and 12 teams that fluctuated over the course of the season because the ABA was also a wild ride. But, you know, now you're doubling the number of, of professional teams, and now the ABA, the NBA is expanding too. So now you've got 20, 25 professional teams. So the talent pool isn't as high. That's one thing. Another thing is you got cable television coming along in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. So now you got NBA games on every night of the week. So, you know, people can watch pro basketball at the highest level whenever they want. That's the other thing. And the third thing is the economy. The 1970s is when the Rust Belt started, you know, kicking in. So now these small towns, they the people there just don't have the, the discretionary income to, 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 to watch professional sports anymore. So you've got teams folding mid-season, ending, end of the year, little by little teams pulling out. 74, 75, you only have four teams left in the Eastern League. They thought they were going to have to fold. They were able to find a few more franchises. And then along comes Anchorage, Alaska. Commissioner at the time, a Philadelphia guy named Steve Kaufman, gets a phone call from some guy in Anchorage, Alaska, I guess it's 76, 75, 76, saying, we love your league. You know, we got a lot of money here because we got oil money here in Anchorage. We want to be in the Eastern League. 
And Kaufman's going, you guys are in Anchorage. He's going, it's all right. We will pay to have teams fly out and we'll split some of the proceeds with them. So Anchorage convinced the owners, or Kaufman convinced the owners to allow Anchorage in the league. So you had, you know, the, the Eastern League and Anchorage. It got some publicity for the league. You now started getting town cities or teams from Long Island and Quincy, Mass, and other larger cities kind of joining the league. But the small town teams, you know, uh, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Allentown, they can't keep up. They don't have big enough gyms. Now Anchorage isn't going to pay their way anymore. So the league, you know, is losing its small teams. And they're still trying to get the NBA's attention. And they have a meeting. And again, you know, it's another Arthur Packer story. But this is literally the way Drucker told me the league changed its name. They had the owners. And they're arguing for three hours about changing the name to something other than Eastern League. Because as long as it's the Eastern League, the NBA isn't interested in it. So they got to have something like the National League or the Continental League or whatever. And they're taking a break. And Arthur and Jim Drucker in the men's room standing next to each other. I don't need to go into any more detail on that. You can picture the scene. And Drucker saying, Arthur, we got to change the name. We got to change the name. I'll give you anything you want. If you name, you pick the name, but we got to change the name. And Arthur goes, oh, I like Continental. So they make it the Continental Basketball League. One of the agreements is that the small-town teams will get guaranteed a buyout if they can't keep up anymore. And little by little, the small-town teams leave. By the, by the late 70s, early 80s, you have the Continental League, which is really now more of a national league in mid-sized cities and no longer that old Eastern League in Eastern Pennsylvania. So it was a transition. So, Jay, if somebody wants to pick up the book, uh, how can they do it? Is it it's available now? Uh, sure, Definitely. So what's the, uh, it's, it's uh, Eastern? Eastern League Book, one word, dot com. Best place to go to order it. Well, guys, this has been great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I just started the book. I look forward to finishing it. So it, oh, it'll, be a, it'll be a lot of fun. Guys, thanks so much for the time. Thank, Thank you. you. This was fun. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.